You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news and stories from the 55 UEFA countries. In this episode, we round up the news and stories from the second half of February, including managerial mayhem in Switzerland, the Luxembourgish leader trying to leave the league, and Haiti's historic Women's World Cup qualification. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sweeper podcast, your audio guide to all the football goings on across the 55 UEFA countries and beyond. My name is Lee Wingate and I am joined by my regular sidekick and global football expert Paul Watson to cast our eyes back at events across the football world in the second half of February. Paul, it's been a busy period in the European club competitions. We've seen an attempted coup foiled in Moldova, Lech Poznan making history for Poland, and a 35-year-old penalty record broken in Belgium. What's caught your eye in the last round of European action? It's rare that you can start a roundup of the week's games with potential coup. I did have my eyes on that that Sheriff game. I like to follow Sheriff's progress. I was lucky enough, I say lucky enough, I suppose I was lucky enough to go to Transnistria and visit sheriff stadium some years ago when it was all a lot more calm and it just felt like a quirky little bit of european sort of nuanced geography that you could nip across this border into a land that technically didn't exist at the time it just felt like a quirky little thing whereas now at the moment it seems like it's something a lot darker at this partisan game you know obviously with the current situation but I, I don't know much about it <laughs> to be honest we'll come back to that in just a second but for the benefit of listeners who aren't too familiar with that part of Europe Transistria is this sort of slither of Moldova which broke away to form a separatist breakaway state essentially with pro-Russian ties about 30 years ago and whenever we talk about Sheriff on this podcast or whenever we tweet about Sheriff we always get comments coming back saying they're not a Moldovan club they're Transnistrian mm. but they have broken ground for Moldova the last couple of years you know you had that Champions League game away to Real Madrid at the Bernabeu last season where they won and caused a major upset and now they've become the first Moldovan representatives to reach the last 16 of a European competition they've done that in some style as well because they were a goal down to Partizan Belgrade after the first leg and they came back to win 3-1 on aggregate a 3-2 on aggregate rather uh, and and qualify for the next round where they play against Nice. So it's it's a big achievement for Moldovan football, isn't it, it? It is, it is. But I always have to caveat this, and I know this opens a slightly interesting debate. But on the field against Partizan, you had two Nigerians, two from Burkina Faso, one Senegalese player, Malian player, Ghanaian, a Bosnian, a Cameroonian, an Ivorian, and a Ukrainian. So there wasn't a single Moldovan on the field. Now, I know, obviously, there's a lot an argument that a lot of teams, you could you could take exception for how, how few homegrown players there are. But if you're looking at Moldovan talent and how it develops, it surely isn't a massively good thing for Moldovan football that your flagship club, the club that's actually making these strides, doesn't have a single Moldovan on the field. That's always been my view. And I know I've had pushback before, but I don't feel that that is a very positive thing for Moldova. 
I agree. I think the wealth disparity between Sheriff and all of the other clubs in the league enables them to become this overwhelmingly dominant force, which I think has won something like 19 or 20 titles already this century in Moldova, mostly with overseas talent. It seems to be their modus operandi, their way of doing things. And you have to say it is working for them at the moment. Yeah, but then the Moldovan national team is not massively succeeding. So I think you have to look at, at that, really, don't you? And say... Is that what success looks like? And then, as you say, the Moldovan League is racked with financial problems for clubs, clubs folding, match-fixing allegations. I just don't know that Sheriff does anything particularly to help with that, that you've got a foregone conclusion of a title race. It's an interesting place, and I'm sure one that we'll come back to in much more detail on a later pod. I didn't actually realise, Paul, that you've been to Transnistria yourself, so we'll definitely be touching back on that at some point in the future. But before we move on to talk about the other news, should we talk a little bit about this alleged coup and what exactly happened here? Because it really is sort of one of these headlines that massively grabs your attention because what they've essentially done here is they have tried to infiltrate the away support, allegedly, and the Moldovan security services have have uncovered this plot whereby these infiltrators were supposed to start riots in strategic locations and overthrow the Moldovan government. Obviously, there's enough going on in the region with, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the moment, but this is just absolutely mad. The thing that I found, I suppose, if you if you have to find a funny side to this kind of thing, which can be hard... But the thing that I thought was quite funny is that the first 12 Serbian citizens arrived in Chisinau, where the match was taking place, the Moldovan capital, on the Monday, which is three days before the game. I don't know (laughs) if if there's (laughs) particularly loads to do in terms of Moldovan tourism, but I doubt you would get any football fans with honest intentions going three days before an away game, would you? No, that does sound, it sounds very suspicious. Away from Sheriff, has anything else caught your eye in the Europa League and the Conference League? Oh, one of the great own goals, I think. Uh, I don't know if you saw this one. It was from Mitterland. I think they were already 3-0 down. And Stefan Gartenman gets the ball and scores an own goal from pretty much 35 yards out. I think he just presumed the goalkeeper was back there, hoofed it. And the best thing is actually the reaction of the opposition players. So probably the funniest thing for me is that the opposition players are not even at all happy about this because, you know, they've, they've won the game. It's actually just pure embarrassment that you see. So it's a real brilliant moment, I've got to say. Yeah, I did see that on the sort of goals roundup at the end of the evening and, and did feel rather sorry for the guy. One thing that particularly stood out to me is the success of Belgian clubs in Europe this season. Four of them left, which is amazing. I mean, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of why this this would be happening. Do you know anything that explains this success? Because it's quite a stark change, isn't it? Explaining the success, I would say, is pretty much the opposite of Linfield, who we talked about on our last episode, who can't seem to win a penalty shootout for love nor money. But two of the Belgium teams came through Conference League penalty shootouts. So you had Ghent and Anderlecht beating the champions of Azerbaijan and Bulgaria, respectively. And a stat really stood out to me about the Anderlecht game, where the goalkeeper, Hmm. Bart Verbruggen, became the first goalkeeper not to concede a single penalty in a major European competition shootout in 35 years. Is that true? That's amazing. You know, I wouldn't have thought it was as rare as that. Oh, so penalties might be part of it. I mean, it does sound like also their draws were relatively favourable, as you say. I mean, with the greatest of respect, 
you would tip a Belgian side against a Bulgarian side most of the time. That league is not enormously strong, but still, you know, it, it is an amazing achievement. And it seems like I wouldn't want to take on Belgium in penalty shootouts, which is actually setting on, setting up, as of course, that Union Berlin versus Union San Gilois game, which is the Union derby. Yeah, they already played each other in the group stages as well. So they're probably sick of yeah. each other by now. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, they did, didn't they? I'd, I'd have to say that's probably one of the picks for tie of the round for the upcoming games in the Europa League and the Conference League. I don't know if you've got any other standout ties. Yeah, I mean, watching Shakhtar Donetsk, I mean, that's a real... Shakhtar's continuing sort of success in the face of everything that's happening in Ukraine is is really interesting to watch and quite exciting and they've got Feyenoord and I think we've we've, we've mentioned Feyenoord a couple of times on this pod at least once that they've had some crazy goal-filled games that we've, we've mentioned so Shakhtar versus Feyenoord would be quite a fun one to watch I think. I agree I think the other one that really stands out is in the Conference League and that's Lech Poznan versus Djurgården of Sweden and I think this is just a matchup of two rank outsiders who are doing great things for their country in Europe this season so on the one hand you've got Lech Poznan who as far as I understand it, are the first Polish club to reach the spring in a European competition in 32 years, which is a very, very long time. And then you've got Djurgården of Sweden from Stockholm, who were the joint third best performing of all 96 clubs in the group stages across the three European competitions this season. They got 16 points, which was surpassed only by West Ham and Bayern Munich. So whichever one of those goes through, I think from that tie is really going to be doing big things for their country and making a lot of headlines. That's an incredible stat as well about about Lech Poznan. I had not realised quite the extent to which this was groundbreaking. That always shocks me about Poland, actually, because I still, I suppose, think of it as being quite a, a big and strong league. But when you look at the UEFA coefficient, it's really quite far down, around 27th or 28th place. And I think that that always surprises me, especially when you look at the amazing fan culture in Poland as well. Yeah, maybe it's to do with the talent drain. I mean, the talent tends to leave relatively young, I guess, maybe. And you've got other leagues that tend to draw from Poland quite frequently. But it's true. And you think about the the kind of players they've produced. It's quite surprising. I didn't realise their coefficient was quite that bad. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's um, definitely got room for improvement. And and perhaps Lech Poznan will help out in that respect this season. Uh, We'll leave it there for our Continental Club competition chat in part one. We'll be back after a short musical interlude to talk about some controversial coaching news across Europe with Switzerland, Italy and Luxembourg all in focus. Welcome back to part two of the Sweeper podcast. Now on this show, we don't have the same predefined categories that we have to cover every week. We simply let ourselves be guided by the stories. And lately, there have been a number of very interesting ones relating to coaches, hence our choice to dedicate this segment to them. First up, we're going to talk about Swiss club Scion, who, to the best of my knowledge, hold a European record when it comes to coaches. Any guesses as to what that may be, Paul? Ah, it's, is it number fired in a season? Close, you're halfway there. <laughs> um, well, okay, because I had this vision of maybe they've got a, have they got a sort of trigger happy Zamperini, you know, remember in Italy, uh, used to fire a manager every two weeks. So it's not, it's not that kind of thing or is yeah. not? Yeah, you pretty much hit the nail exactly on the head there. So this is the curious case of Scion in Switzerland. 
who have had 56 managerial appointments this century, which is quite some staggering number. That's uh, according to Craig King, who runs the excellent Swiss football account, Swiss Football EN on Twitter. He's done a breakdown of some of the hirings and firings that they've done over the years. But the latest one is their coach, Fabio Celestini, who has only been in charge for six games and only in place since November 2022. Uh, But with Sion in ninth place and just above the relegation zone on goal difference, he's been placed on basically what I can only describe as gardening leave. So (laughs) So he's still in charge, but not allowed to do any work. Mm. Well, he's he's been sidelined for one week. And the best part of this story, in my opinion, is that the club president, Christian Constantin, is taking over for the next two games. Oh, wow. Oh, it's another one of these megalomaniacal um, presidents, is it? Oh, dear. is it? Because this is the club. Is it not the club with Balotelli, Mario Balotelli at the moment? So that's, yeah, um, exactly. Uh, and the yeah, fans are all one. burning his shirt and um, really angry at him. Their main anger at him seems to be that he doesn't run enough. Because I think they, were, they put up a banner saying sort of sweat or get out. It's a very interesting yeah. threat. It's a sort of the opposite of the threat that I usually get places. But um, <laughs> yeah, very weird sort of place for Balotelli, but almost quite a fitting place for Balotelli to find himself where there's this absolute mayhem going on all around him. I actually um, made a little note of some of the most notable sackings that this guy has implemented over the years, Christian Constantin. Mm. And I thought this has come from a, a brilliant thread, by the way, by Craig, who I mentioned just a second ago. But I thought I'd give you a little rundown, Paul, of some of mm. my favorite managerial sackings at Scion this century. So in 2005, a coach called Gilbert Gress won 10 of his first 17 matches and lost only one. But Constantin told him he needed to win his first three games after the winter break. He only took seven points out of a possible nine and was fired. The next one, in 2008, Uli Stilica was sacked for, in Constantin's words, turning up in a dishevelled state and giving off an unpleasant (laughs) smell. That's got to be one. That's not a sacking that you want on your references on your CV, is it really? No. That's amazing. And the last one, uh, in 2012, uh, Roland Corbis was hired despite a history of fraud and embezzlement, but he ultimately managed zero games because he didn't have the proper (laughs) licence. Who would have thought someone with a history of fraud might not have his licences in order? That's amazing. What a club. (laughs) Do you want a a little glimpse into some of his off-the-field highlights as well? Oh, how could you not? How could you not after this? (laughs) I think it's even better. So here's here's some of his sort of pick of the bunch off-the-field highlights involving the Scion president, Christian Constantin. So the highlights include a three-month suspension for a tunnel melee in 2007, kicking a pitch-side pundit up the arse and later (laughs) reconciling with him over fondue. Which sounds like the most Swiss thing ever, doesn't that it? Is Not very, the kicking yeah, up the ass, but the fondue. No, yeah, exactly. No, the kicking up the ass, we don't know if that's a Swiss custom or not. But yeah, fondue, that's amazing. Successfully complaining to UEFA that a game against Spartak Moscow should be replayed because the goalposts were eight centimetres too short. <laughs> Sending his players to a four-day military camp in Montpellier in 2018. And lastly, terminating the contracts of nine players after they refused to take a pay cut during the pandemic. Wow, he sounds like he just sounds like a great guy. <laughs> I'm sure people <laughs> describe him as a, a big character. I think that's usually the euphemism people use for guys like that, isn't it? 
to move from a club that has appointed 56 coaches to a coach who has seemingly worked for 56 clubs, I believe you've identified a story coming out of the lower reaches of Italian football that has caught your eye. Yeah, I mean, incredibly, Zeman is back. And Zednik Zeman, I thought I'd seen the back of him, <laughs> finally. You know, he's obviously an absolute legend in managerial terms. I think he's 75 years old now. He's managed almost every club you can think of and some of them twice and he's been at Foggia alone three times this is his third spell at Pescara he he's been everywhere in Italy he's been in Lecce Napoli Roma Lazio he's one of the rare few that's done Lazio and Roma and for a while his team's played some of the most exciting football in Italy very like attacking he pioneered this at the time quite pioneering 4-3-3 style that he liked and he had this saying that if we score 100 goals a season, we don't have to worry about what the other team do. You know, this kind of that was his kind of attitude. Very like gung ho, attacking, fun football. But he's getting on, <laughs> um, and you know, I felt like his career had its sort of downturn. And funnily enough, he went to Pescara, went to Foggia, and has come back to Pescara again. So he's in this sort of loop that managers get into in Italy quite a lot. But yeah, he's obviously most distinctively known, Zeman, for his chain smoking, which he likes to do on the sideline, or he certainly used to like to do on the sideline. I don't know if it's allowed anymore. But yeah, what an incredible, like an incredible character. When the announcement was made, like I must admit, I could not quite believe he was still going. And at 75, to be going into the third tier Italian football, that <laughs> suggests he's not quite able to let football go yet. I think to come back to your point about whether smoking is still allowed, I'm pretty sure Maurizio Sarri would not still be on the touchlines if it wasn't possible to Does, chain smoke, smoke during matches. Oh, so he smokes during matches on the side. See, this is what I'm not sure about. Because obviously I think you can smoke. You couldn't smoke in the stands, could you? I don't think legally, not even in Italy, I don't think. So you can smoke on the sideline because it's technically outside. <laughs> it's a very interesting rule. Yeah, as far as I know, Maurizio Sarri is still chain smoking his way through most of Lazio's <laughs> Serie A games, but I could be wrong. So if anybody knows the smoking regulations inside Italian Stadia, they can definitely feel free to let us know. Uh, what about Daniele De Rossi? He's in this brilliantly Italian limbo now, Daniele De Rossi. So he got his first sort of proper club management job with Spal Ferrara. So second tier club in Italy and struggled like he you know they're they're in the relegation shake-up there and he managed I think just three wins in 17 and quite cruelly was sacked on Valentine's Day which I don't think anyone should do that I imagine they did it in a card you know <laughs> um, <laughs> but amazingly this is what makes this one quite unique it seems quite likely he's gonna be brought back just two weeks later so there's a lot of talk now in Italy that he's about to be reinstated and this happens a lot in Italian football you know almost perpetually that clubs sack their managers, bring someone else in, sack them and bring back the first person who I guess is still under contract at the club. So it's a weird thing. I think they don't break the contract and therefore they can just bring them straight back in as if nothing happened. But I've never heard of it happening as quickly as two weeks. That would be an astonishing return, wouldn't it, really? They, I hope they do a big announcement if it is, you know, parade him around again. Uh, that does really sound like an Italian football phenomenon. If I had to think of a country that sort of sacks managers and brings them back, I always think of, isn't there a club in, in Italy that, that is renowned for that? There's one that just does it all the time. So yeah, Palermo were famous for it. In fact, any club that Maurizio Zamperini was at were famous for it. So he was like an old, he sadly died quite recently. He was an old sort of fiery old guy who was chairman of Palermo for years. And like one of these people who 
would sack a manager like mid press conference, that kind of like attitude. You know, he was just, and he, I think he did 15 years at Palermo and changed managers 40 times during that, during that time. And I think after that, maybe then went on to be on the board somewhere else, but he's famed obviously, I think for Palermo, who's also in Venezia for a while. And it was a similar thing. He would sack managers quite regularly. But yeah, sadly, he he passed away quite recently. I think he was he was probably around eighty, and I think he died quite recently. But he's the one I always think of Zamperini, and the haunted look in a manager's face when a manager lost a game under Zamperini and was sort of asked at a press conference, you know, how are you going to change things for the next game? And you knew, and they knew <laughs> there was no next game. I think Christian Constantin of Sion is still very much flying the flag in his honour in that respect. Uh, let's conclude our coaching segment by talking about Luxembourg, which has been getting quite a few mentions and some loving on our episodes since the relaunch and is about to get some more airtime today because we've got a couple of quite interesting coaching stories in Luxembourg. I'll just run through those quickly. So you have Mark Tommy, who is the coach of UN Keryang. He is, as far as I know, to the best of my knowledge, the only coach who is top of the disciplinary charts in a top flight <laughs> European league at the moment. Wow. <laughs> How is that possible? How often has he been sent off then? So he's got three yellow cards and three red cards in the season so far, which gives him, they sort of tally it up in Luxembourg. So disciplinary points per yellow card, per red card for two bookable offences and per direct red card. And he's got 16 disciplinary points in total, which is four more than any other player in the league. <laughs> That's amazing. Which, That's yeah, amazing. Is, is quite incredible. But I don't think it's the best coaching story in Luxembourg at the moment. I think that belongs to Jeff Strasser of Progress Niederkorn, who in the final match before the winter break was given a one-match suspension because he accumulated five yellow cards. So this sort of touchline ill-discipline seems to be quite quite a theme in, in Luxembourg amongst coaches. But he was actually on the bench against the league leaders at the time, F91 Dudelange, and they won 4-1. But what he did to get around the ban was to appoint himself as the coach of the youth team for their Coupe de France game in December, which he then sat on the sidelines for while the usual coach took charge in the dugout anyway and essentially served his suspension in a youth team game, which... F91 Dudelange were livid about and it seems like such an obvious violation like a sort of yeah. disregard for the rules but the Luxembourg Football Federation have just accepted it and said no that's fine I was just thinking I wonder if anyone else is like noting this like Jose Mourinho sort of jotting this down in a notebook but I imagine it would be a federation by federation thing wouldn't it maybe another federation would just <laughs> tell them to not be stupid and just not go with that but otherwise that's an amazing loophole it's genius <laughs> maybe it's simply that the federation have enough to worry about at the moment because they are currently locked in a dispute with swift hesperange they are the only top flight club in europe this season that haven't lost a game in any competition and they're now five points clear at the top of the table after a couple of poor results for f91 dudelange and they're on course for their very first top flight title but at the same time, they're locked in an argument with UEFA and the Luxembourg FA because they are not happy about the facts that well, what they see essentially is that there's an anti-competitive nature to Luxembourgish football and that 
your fortunes, your sporting and financial fortunes are essentially tied to the country you belong in. So this is a sort of European Super League style dispute where they want to be able to leave and join a potential Benelux league because they believe it's beneficial to them and the other clubs. And they feel that UEFA and the Luxembourgish FA are unfairly blocking the emergence of cross-border leagues like that. Wow. Is it, I mean, is there a move for a Benelux league or is this hypothetical? When you talk about cross-border leagues in Europe, this is the one that's always seemed like the most realistic prospect, the Benelux League, because you've got really, I suppose, two leagues, Netherlands and Belgium, which are never really going to break into that top five in Europe, but they might if they were combined and joined forces. And I think Luxembourg has always sort of been in the picture in that regard as well. So yeah. I think it's probably the, the likeliest one, but obviously the Super League's laid down a pretty firm response and i imagine for luxembourg it would turn it into almost a Liechtenstein situation would it not where you'd have a very limited number of luxembourgish clubs that were allowed in this benelux league and then would the others be left in a limbo where they maybe had to enter the amateur level of that i don't know where they would be left or whether they would continue to have a luxembourg domestic league but that didn't have any uefa recognition i don't know it'd be quite a strange situation wouldn't it, for them yeah, I imagine there'd be a couple of divisions, so you might get perhaps a few more Luxembourg teams in the second tier of that as well. But it, it remains a pipe dream for now, but it's just quite interesting to see that they're on the verge of their <laughs> first ever top flight title and they're more concerned about whether they can leave and join a different league anyway. Yeah, I imagine like Luxembourg Football Federation doesn't sound like a place you want to be working right now, does it really? Or <laughs> it sounds like they've got a lot on, as you say. The coach is all in rebellion against the referees. Their best club trying to leave. It's <laughs> not the best ever time for Luxembourg Sports Administration. Yeah, agreed. Any more coaching stories to add or should we leave it there for part two? Those are the ones that's jumped into my mind, I think. Yeah, those were the, the ones I had. All right, then we'll leave it there for part two. We'll be back in a second for part three, where we'll talk about some first-time qualifiers for the Women's World Cup, some domestic cup competitions around the globe, and a scandal in Somalia. This is part three of the Sweeper podcast, where we round up everything that didn't neatly fit into one of our previous categories, uh, starting <laughs> with Paul, a story that you've identified in Somalia. Yeah, so this is a depressingly familiar story, but it is a bizarre one that Somalia's football federation is in absolute chaos because two presidents were elected on the same day, uh, two different presidents, <laughs> which is always a bad thing. I think it's fair to say and it's a really, as I say, a thing that happens too regularly in Somalia. There's two cliques in Somalian football, and it goes back to really when the existing president at the time was removed because of uh, alleged abuse of his authority. And so his vice president, who I think is known as Shino, but he's Ali Abdi Mohammed, he was elected then or sort of given the right to oversee an election for who would replace the president. And a very natural opponent presented himself in Hassan Wish, who was also called Wish Haji Yabo, but I think he's generally called Wish by people. And so you had these two cliques that then basically sort of feuded. And in the build-up to this election, there was a lot of the usual kind of stuff where delegates were being told they wouldn't be allowed to vote because of some administrative oversight, but it was actually 
because they supported the opposition. And, you know, there was all this kind of two sides fighting with each other and pushing each other to the point where, yeah, two separate elections were held, two separate results were celebrated in different parts of Mogadishu. What would the next step forward be then to resolve this presidential dispute? I think it probably goes to FIFA or to CAF to arbitrate this. But I don't think it's as simple as just one being recognised as the legitimate president and the others being cast out. I I think the simple fact that there have been two elections and the fact that this is all going on, I I think, means there has to be a process taken. But I'm I'm not sure. I'd I'd love to hear from someone who knows more about this stuff. But the one thing you can be sure of is whoever does triumph, if, if it can be called a triumph and does get their way, there's obviously cliques and people behind the scenes now who will wish them ill and that generally will only result in problems and problems that, again, prevent players representing their nation abroad, which is just really sad. Let's move across to some on-the-field matters now and and round up a few of the domestic cup competitions. I'll give you the choice, Paul. Shall I take us to Sweden or Argentina next? (laughs) Well, I've I've got to go to Argentina, I think. Well, we talked last time about Centro Espanol didn't we? The club that don't even have their own stadium that became only the second fifth tier team in the history of the Copa Argentina to knock out top flight opposition. And we've had two more shocks pretty recently, both on the 22nd of February and both by teams in the fourth division knocking out more top tier sides. So it's been a pretty terrible campaign so far for the teams in the Argentinian top flight. You had a club called Excursionistas eliminating Gymnasia on penalties. And you had Newell's old boys, who I think have recently been linked to sort of bring back Lionel Messi, uh, who definitely won't want to come back after their latest result because they lost 1-0 at home to a club called Claypole. They're famous for something. Do you know what they're famous for, Claypole? No. What is it? They are famous for playing a match where every player on the pitch, so 22 players on the pitch, and... I think all subs and coaches were given red cards. So <laughs> I think it's the record for the most red cards ever issued. I believe 36 people were sent off in, in a game. It, this is going back about a decade, but I'm pretty certain about this, that this was Claypole, the same one. That is absolutely brilliant knowledge. I'm going to have to look that up directly after for the episode. Well, they're in pretty pretty happy mood right now after knocking out Newell's old boys, who are managed by Gabriel Ainsley. Do you remember him? Yeah, I do. So he's got probably one of the most unwanted managerial records of all time at the moment, because in his managerial career in Argentina, he has played five Copa Argentina ties and he has lost them all to lower league opposition. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is not a record you hear very often. So it's almost a giant killer if Ainsley wins a game in, a, in the cup. Really. Yeah. It got me thinking, actually, about like other managerial curses, which I suppose they're quite quite a hard thing to find if none immediately come to mind. But I did find a couple which sort of might make Gabriel Ainsley feel a little bit better about his recent Copa Argentina plight. So the ones that I uncovered were David Moyes having never won a Premier League game away to Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal or Chelsea in 71 attempts, which is a lot of attempts. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's. And the other one I found was uh, the Bosnian coach, Vahid Halilhodzic, has been fired three times after qualifying a country for the World Cup, but before the actual tournament. 
Yes. Now, I spoke about this one, uh, I think it was Football Weekly podcast at the time, that just after the latest qualification campaign, he was in charge of uh, Morocco, as I remember it. And he was absolutely toxic to the atmosphere there. Everybody couldn't stand him. He had benched the best players. And so, yeah, again, I was speculating at the time that he might be, be about to get this incredible record. And I think the thing with him is he's just one of these people who either you are like either you'll play for him and you'll run through walls for him or you despise him. And that tends to get him sacked pretty fast, especially because he tends to coach teams that expect to qualify. So qualification in itself doesn't save his job. It's, it's like, well, yeah, we thought we'd qualify, but you've got a team that half of them hate you. <laughs> so he does tend to go <laughs> quite often. To continue the domestic cup roundup, now moving back up to Europe and to Sweden. The Swedish cup is always one of those that really sort of catches my interest because it's one of only three primary domestic cup competitions in Europe with a group stage which always seems quite unusual to me you know you think of cup competitions as always being about knockout tires and, mm -hmm. and giant killings but Sweden has a group stage along with I think it's Russia and Kazakhstan and in the group stage at the moment you have the reigning cup holders Malmo uh, in a group with a fourth tier club called Lulea who are in the northernmost county of Nor uh, of Sweden, sorry, which is called Norbotten County. And so it's, I think, if you look at Google Maps, it's an 18-hour drive. It's about one and a half thousand kilometers on a Tuesday night of all nights. It's not, it's not even <laughs> as if you can have a mad weekend dash up there. And they took 70 Malmo fans for the, the first of the two games against uh, Lulea in the group stages and this place is so far north that at this time of year the weather conditions i.e the snow make it impossible to play football because it's so close to the arctic circle so they had to play in an indoor hall on top of all what? of that well as in a proper 11 aside field though right they weren't just playing sort of five aside indoors yeah. <laughs> no a proper hall but it looks outside it doesn't look like it's a, a football stadium in there it looks like some sort of big greenhouse or something like that that's amazing. God, I do. I love the the madness of that cup competition. I mean, can you imagine the reluctance with which Malmo must have travelled to that game? Like, if you tried to get the equivalent to happen with an English Premier League team, it would be <laughs> it would be vetoed in all sorts of ways, wouldn't it? Yeah, most likely. But I mean, Lulea will have to make that return journey back down south now, and maybe they'll even manage to beat the tally of seventy away fans for the return <laughs> leg. But they definitely ran Malmo close. It was one nil, and the, the goal was scored in the eighty-second minute. So I think that's pretty impressive. Wow. That's very impressive. Fair play to that. It's a that's a great result. Talking of great results, do you want to talk a little bit about the women's World Cup? Yeah, I do. And lots of teams qualifying for their first Women's World Cup. So you've got Philippines, Vietnam, Zambia, Morocco, Republic of Ireland, Portugal. But the two jumped to my mind were Panama and Haiti. So Haiti, probably the most dramatic in a way, it kind of sums up how far they've come that they could qualify for this. But also with the backdrop of everything that's been going on in the country, you know, it's been crisis after crisis, assassination of the president in 2021, natural disasters. There's a lot of problems with, you know, gang violence. It's not, Haiti, Haiti's not been a nice place to be necessarily. That this team could qualify for a World Cup is absolutely sensational, really. And it's brought, hopefully, a real boost to the nation. It was an amazing run as well. They they beat Chile, uh, well, they thumped Senegal and then they beat Chile 2-1. And that was quite a dramatic game. They um, 
Mr. Penalty, Chili thumped the bar, but it was all sort of spearheaded by the real phenomenon is, is Melchi Dumonet, who plays for Lyon. So she's, you know, at one of the top clubs in European football. And she's just been absolute powerhouse for them. But it was really emotional to see Haiti qualify and what it meant to the players. You know, there's, there's a lot of tears were shed. And not to give this too much prominence because this deserves to be, you know, a time for the players to celebrate. But there's a backdrop to this that the president of the Haiti Football Federation was recent, I think in 2020, was banned for life because of systematic sexual abuse and harassment of boys and girls. And it was just a horror story. A good friend of mine, Roman, Roman Molina, uh, investigative journalist, done some really brilliant work on this, but also very hard to read about what it was like being in the Haiti Football Federation and the the atmosphere around it. But basically, it, there's all sorts of horrific abuse that took place in that federation. And this has come back into the news recently because this president, Yves Jean-Bart, uh, who they know as Dadu, who was very rightly banned for life, has had his ban annulled by the Court for Arbitration for Sport. This has happened really recently. And it's been basically annulled because the Court of Arbitration for Sport held this trial that was completely not fit for purpose. And a lot of people didn't want to testify because our identities weren't protected. So it's quite a poignant moment that this this terrible abuse and this 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 dreadful figurehead of it is resurfacing and not now banned for life by FIFA. But at the same time, in spite of him, there's this amazing success that these women have achieved. And it's really sad his name has to be mentioned, but I do think it deserves mention of what these female players in Haiti have suffered. And, and male players too, but you know what what a lot of these women will have will have suffered and been in the environment of. And despite that, for Haiti to qualify for this World Cup seems like a really fitting triumph. Yeah, I think it makes it even more impressive when you when you tell the sad story going on in the background there that they've managed to get to their first Women's World Cup, which will be taking place in Australia and New Zealand. I think that's a, a remarkable achievement from them. This wouldn't be a normal episode of The Sweeper Pool if I didn't give you the opportunity to tell us the latest about the Oceania Champions League. So what's been going on there? <laughs> well, the, the one that I was particularly interested in were the preliminaries in Samoa. So in Apia, they had a tournament, which is sort of a pre-qualification tournament. And it had the teams from American Samoa, the hosts from Samoa, Cook Islands and Tonga. And the team that really caught the eye, I think, of anyone who watched Next Goal Wins, for sure, the brilliant documentary about American Samoa, uh, would have been Elawa and Tomata, because they're... Well, you'll see some familiar faces from Next Goal Wins. One, the, the main one being Jaya Sailua, who is the first transgender woman to play in the RFC Champions League. And so she, quite amazing. She's had this incredible and inspirational journey. And yeah, this was sort of possibly one of the culminations of her playing career here to, to go out and represent this team from American Samoa in the OFC Champions League. They lost very heavily, as you might expect. They lost 13-0 to Lupa Olaswaga. But, you know, that wasn't really... The issue, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing how far American Samoan football has come. And it's really inspirational to see um, see Jaya's career and where it's gone as well. So we've had Somalia, Samoa and a bit of the a bit of Central America, too. Is there anything else around the world right now that we should add before we round off the show today? Oh, one final little point is that the Falkland Islands has a new Astro pitch, which it has never had before. So this is a very big thing in the Falkland that. The weather conditions, as you can expect, are pretty windswept and, and difficult and uh, pitch would flood very regularly. So, yeah, they've, they've got a new pitch, brand shiny new pitch that they've unveiled in Stanley in the Falkland Islands, which they hope will help their men's team train for the um, Island Games in Guernsey uh, in July. 
Another good news story to end the episode on then. Well, there you have it for the latest podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please, please do share the podcast on your social media platforms of choice, especially with a retweet for the episode on Twitter and leave us a review on your podcast platform too. If you're anything like me and you've got one or two WhatsApp groups dedicated solely to football, why not recommend the latest episode to your pals that way too? That would certainly be a huge help for us as we bid to bring this labor of love to a wider audience. In the meantime, thanks from me and Paul for tuning in and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast. If you like what you've heard, come and follow us on Twitter at SweeperPod and leave a review for us on your podcast platform of choice. Special thanks go to the Gentleman Creatives Design Agency in Vienna, Austria for their amazing graphics and logos. You'll find them too if you come to our Twitter page.